Matthew chapter 2, and we're continuing uh, moving through Matthew, and today we're also continuing our sort of Christmas in September um, as we're looking at a text that is typically looked at in December, however we're in September, and uh, so I pray that not only that the Lord speaks to you, but that maybe you get a little bit of that Christmas spirit in you as well. You go home and listen to some Christmas carols on the way home or something like that. Um, but uh, before we read the passage in Matthew chapter 2, uh, in Matthew chapter 1, there was two main ideas that were communicated to us. And, and I don't want us to lose sight of those as we move forward because they're absolutely key. In Matthew chapter 1, uh, the first thing that he begins with is by telling us about Jesus and, and his earthly lineage and that through his earthly lineage that passed through his stepfather, Joseph, that he had a legal right to sit on the throne of Israel. That God had made these promises to his people that there would come a king who would establish a, a kingdom in Israel, that, that he would sit upon the throne of, of David, who was looked back as, as the greatest king of the kingdom period of Israel, and so Matthew begins his gospel by saying, Jesus is that king. Jesus is that Messiah. Jesus is the one who will fulfill the promises that God has made. And then he traced that earthly lineage through uh, Joseph, showing that he had the legal right to sit on that throne. And then the second part of chapter 1, we looked at last week, and that was not only showing us Jesus' earthly lineage, but showing that there was a divine lineage outside of that earthly lineage and that Jesus was the, the second member of the Trinity. He was the, the son of God who, who existed from all eternity past, who, who came into existence through a miracle of the Holy Spirit and the virgin birth. And we saw that how he quoted from Isaiah 7, 14, which said that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means... God with us. God with us. And so he starts with this huge declaration that Jesus is the king, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. Not only does he have an, a, an earthly right to sit on that throne, he has a divine right as the son of the true and living God. And so now we move into Matthew chapter 2, and he continues on the story. And it says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And as they came, they came saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means among, or are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them at what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring him to me, or bring word to me, that I too may come. And worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. 
Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would speak to each one of us today that is here. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful time of worship that we had already this morning. Lord, that we are gathered here in your name and we know that you are here with us, that you are meeting here with us today. And so, Lord, as we continue to to work through your word today, I pray that you would speak to us by your spirit that you would help me to communicate what it is that you want communicated today and that you would work in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, that we would shine bright even as that star shone bright and pointed the way to Jesus. Lord, that your people, Lord, that we would arise and shine uh, for our light has come and that we would shine bright for you in these days, in these dark days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It says here, uh, right at the beginning, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. I want to talk to you a little bit and help you understand a little bit about who this was, who this King Herod was. Before King Herod came to the throne in 63 B.C., so 60-ish years before Christ was born, Rome had been captured, or Jerusalem rather, had been captured by Rome. And they had set up their own false government there, and the people of Israel were living under Roman occupation for about 60 years by the time that Jesus is born. And there had been several rebellions against the Roman occupation, several attempts to push uh, Rome out of uh, Jerusalem and out of Israel. They had all been unsuccessful, and Rome had squashed those rebellions with intense severity. At some point, around 40 AD, the Roman Senate appoints this man named Herod to be the king of the Jews. He's known in history as Herod the Great. There's actually three different Herods in the New Testament. This is the first one known as Herod the Great. What we need to know about him is that he was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. He was not a descendant of David. He was not uh, a descendant. uh, uh, He did not have the right to sit on David's throne. He had been declared to be the king of the Jews by the Roman Senate. He was a Gentile, but he wasn't just any kind of Gentile. He was an Edomite. Now, if you don't know what an Edomite is, that's okay. But what that means is that he was a descendant of Esau, of Esau. Now, if you don't know who Esau was, that's also okay, but what you need to know is that Esau was the brother of Jacob, the twin brother of Jacob, and that God had promised that he would bring the blessing of Abraham through Jacob, and then God later changed Jacob's name to Israel, to Israel. And so Esau and Jacob were ten brothers, or two twin brothers who were constantly Uh, fighting with each other. In fact, their conflict started in their mother's womb as they were, the Bible tells us, even wrestling with each other in the womb, producing great pain uh, for their mother as as she bore them. And so this conflict here that's happening, it's not just here between Rome and Jerusalem, and it's not just here between Rome and, and Israel. This is a conflict now as they've put a descendant of Esau, to sit on David's throne when God had promised to bring the blessing through Jacob. And so Herod has no legitimate right to David's throne. He is an imposter. He's only appointed as king of the Jews because he's the friend of Caesar Augustus. What you also need to know about Herod the Great was that he was absolutely ruthless. We're going to see that later as we move on into chapter 2. We'll look at this next week as he has all of the children two years and younger in Bethlehem slaughtered as he tries to kill this Messiah. He was a ruthless man when uh, he once got paranoid that uh, two of his own sons were conspiring to take his throne from him, he had their mother and his two children executed out of paranoia. He was a ruthless 
man. He was not godly. He, he, he was not the legitimate king of the Jews. And it tells us in his day is when Jesus was born. It also goes on to say that, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, I want to talk a little bit about these wise men. We don't know a lot about these visitors. It doesn't tell us a lot here in Matthew. They're only mentioned in Matthew's gospel. And so, in, in, in some respects, they're very much shrouded in mystery. The Bible really doesn't say much other than what we've read here in these few verses. But even though the Bible doesn't say much, it doesn't stop people from speculating about them. And the amount of speculation around these mysterious wise men, these magi, is it, it, it literally fills volumes of speculation. However, I don't think it's too wise to get be too far beyond what the light of Scripture tells us. Uh, there's a lot of speculation. However, what is true is that this word uh, wise men here is the Greek word magi. And we do know a little bit about the magi from history. And it refers to a group of scholars who studied the stars. They studied the, the stars. It, they studied astronomy. And most likely they also practiced astrology, predicting of the, trying to predict the future by the stars, horoscopes and and things like this. In fact, their title uh, is, is where we ultimately get our word magic from. The word magic is associated with this title magi. And so they were most likely practicing some, for, some form of astrology and astronomy mixed together. Now, of course, we get our, our Christmas carol we key, three kings of Orient are. We get this carol from this passage here. However, that title, the We Three Kings of Orient are, um, there's some complexities with that if we look at the scriptural record. Because number one, the scripture doesn't tell us that there was three of them. If there was three of them, the text doesn't say it. Uh, the, the number three is taken from the number of gifts that they brought. So... It's inferred or assumed or speculated that there were three kings. However, it doesn't say that there were three. There could have been 30, for all we know. If they were kings, also, the text doesn't say that. It doesn't say that they were kings. It says, in fact, that they were magi. Magi usually were not kings, but they were counselors to the kings. They would give the kings advice but they were not typically kings. It's assumed, it's speculated that they may have been kings because of their extravagant gifts, but uh, we should not assume that they were kings. The Bible doesn't say that they are kings, and history doesn't tell us that either. And then the other word is orient. It doesn't say that they were from the orient. It doesn't say that at all. In fact, it says they were from the east, from the east. Now, the interesting thing is if you're living in Jerusalem, just about everything else is to the east because of geography. Unless they came by boat, they absolutely came from the east. And so how far east it went uh, is we, we don't know. Um, so there's just tons and tons of speculation about the Magi. There's tons of speculation about the, the, the star and, and what was that and uh, even looking back into history at, at certain um, astrological events that we can trace back and look at in history and, and see that maybe it was this uh, event in, in astrological history that they were seeing, or maybe it was that event, and so people speculate about all of that. But it really doesn't tell us. It tells us that they are guided by a star, some sort of stellar phenomenon, it also doesn't tell us how they knew that this star was pointing towards the king of the Jews that had been, past tense, had been born. What I think, I'll give you what I think as I have poured over literally mountains of speculation on this, I think there is a good chance that these magi are from ancient Babylon, they are from the remnants of the kingdom that known as Babylon. 
that they are uh, a descendants of the wise men that we read about in the book of Daniel. And if you look at the book of Daniel, you'll see how he was, because of his great wisdom, he was brought into uh, the, the ministry, if you will, of the, the magi who adva- uh, advised and gave counsel to the king. You'll, you'll recall that the kings of Babylon and also of Assyria would have these strange visions, these strange dreams, and they would call upon their wise men to interpret them. And you'll recall that in one of their dreams, the king said, I'm not going to tell you the dream. In fact, you, the wise men, you have to tell me the dream first, and then you can interpret it. And if you don't tell me the dream first, I know that you're just making stuff up when I tell you, if I tell you the dream, and then you give me the interpretation. And they said, how can we, how can we tell you the interpretation to the dream if you don't tell us the dream? And then he said, well, not only that, but if you don't, I'm going to kill all of you. And so then Daniel hears about this, and Daniel says, let's pray and let's fast, and he does, and God gives Daniel the interpretation, and he saves all of the magi. And so it's very possible that these, uh, these magi are descendants of those who had been acquainted with the God of Daniel, as Daniel had saved their necks by his miraculous intervention of God. It's very possible that the Magi, when Daniel had saved them, went to Daniel and said, hey, uh, tell us about your God. How did you know this? How did this happen? So I think that's a possibility. It doesn't say that. I think that is a possibility because that also would explain to us how they are looking forward to and anticipating the birth of the king of the Jews because they would have had to been uh, uh, aware of the Old Testament scriptures to be thinking in that way and anticipating that. And so they were aware that there was a promised king who was going to be born. Now, if they are coming from Babylon, which is, of course, to the east, it means they've traveled some 900 miles. That's an incredible journey. It's an incredible distance. You know, it's not like it is today where we can jump in the car and just head down I-10 or head up I-35 and, and, and travel 900 miles with relative ease. It's not like that. It, it took planning. It took care. It, it, it most likely meant that they didn't travel alone, but that they had servants and attendants and, and, and a, a large entourage with them as they traveled. Now, off, often the scene of the Magi coming is often placed at the manger, where we see the, the, the angels above the manger and the shepherds there and, and Jesus in the manger and all the sheep and animals, Joseph with them, and the three wise men there. But as we look at the text here today, uh, it, it's pretty clear that they didn't come to the manger scene. Verse 11 of chapter 2, it says that they're, they're staying in a house and so they're not still living in a barn. Remember, Jesus was born in a barn because there, there was a great census that happened at that time, and people had to travel back to their place of birth of their ancestry. So Joseph and Mary had to travel back to Bethlehem. Many other people had made that trek, and so all of the hotel rooms were full. And so the only place that could be found for Mary to give birth was a stable. However, after the census was over and everybody pulled out of town... It appears that Mary and Joseph have settled there in Bethlehem because they're now staying in a house, no longer living in a barn. Additionally, when you look at Luke chapter 2, it tells us after Jesus was born that uh, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus went to the temple in Jerusalem, which was about five miles from uh, Bethlehem. So they traveled from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. And that she, she offers the sacrifice that was required after a woman gave birth and fulfilled her time of purification. She was to go present herself to the priests and then to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And the sacrifice for that was a lamb. However, Mary offered two turtle doves, which, is, which was the sacrifice that someone would make if they didn't have enough money, enough resources, and could not afford a lamb. And so it's most likely that uh, 
Mary and Joseph were very poor, and they could not afford the offering of a lamb, and so instead they offered the two turtle doves. Now, the reason I point that out is because if they had come after the Magi visit, if the Magi had visited at the manger scene and dumped a bunch of gold, frankincense, and myrrh on them, they certainly could have afforded the sacrifice of a lamb. And so what has probably happened is after the manger, they find a place to stay, they travel to Jerusalem, offer the offering for her purification, and then they settle back in Bethlehem some five miles away. And so all of the indicators point to the Magi coming sometime within two years of Jesus being born. We say two years because when Herod interviews them and then later gives his order to have the children of Bethlehem slaughtered, he says children two years and younger. And so it's probably somewhere within the two years. Jesus may already be running around, you know, a little ankle biter by that time. But he's definitely not still laying in a manger. Now something else I want to point out in verse 11, because we live in San Antonio, Texas, I feel compelled to point some of these things out sometimes as we look at them. If you look at verse 11, it says, going into the house, they saw the child. Again, the, the word here used is the word for child, a toddler, not a baby. So they saw the child with Mary, his mother. So they see Mary there. But it says that they fell down and worshipped him. They didn't fall down and worship them, they fell down and worshipped him. Now again, because we live in San Antonio, I need to point out that they don't worship Mary. They don't now bow down to Mary, who's standing right there with him. That Mary is not a co-redemptress in salvation. Mary is not a part of the salvation work. She's not a part of redemption. She was used by God and, and in a mighty way. And she was a godly woman, a God-fearing woman, a true believer. But she was not, she had no part and she has no part to play in our redemption. She is not a co-mediator between us and God. She is not, she is, amen, she is not we have one mediator between God and man, 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us. It is Jesus Christ. There's only one mediator. We don't have to go through Mary to get to Jesus. We do not pray to Mary. It's, it's not that, you know, Jesus really loves his mother in heaven, and so if we can convince Mary of something, then she can sort of twist Jesus' arm, and then Jesus can go and twist the Father's arm. No, we have one high priest. He's Jesus. A high priest who doesn't stand at the altar giving his sacrifice over and over and over again, but who the book of Hebrews says gave a sacrifice once and for all. And that through him we are redeemed. Through him we are cleansed. Through him we are set free of sin. And so looking to Mary, praying to Mary, truly does break the first commandment which says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And that commandment is typically also broken with the second commandment, which says you shall make no graven images and worship them. And so we do not pray to statues. We do not pray to figurines of saints and of Mary. We do not pray to statues of Jesus. We, we do not look to those icons which are really idols, it's idolatry to make images of God. We do not do that. 
because, it beca- because we ultimately end up putting our faith in those objects and in those icons, not in the one who truly has the power to save. If you go visit the big uh, cathedral downtown, you'll see one of, I think, one of the most heartbreaking things you will ever see in your life. The big cathedral, San Fernando. If, if you go down there sometime when you're downtown e- eating your enchiladas, um, take a walk to San Fernando. And as you walk in, you'll see these, these idols. And what you will see if you go and examine them closely is you will see that on, in certain places the paint has been worn off as people in their desperation. And, and if you go at a time when people are worshiping, what you'll see is people go in, bow down before these statues, and then rub them, and then rub either a place on their body that is sick, and they've literally worn the paint off of these statues looking to a statue in faith. And it is heartbreaking because it truly is idolatry. I just had to point that out because we live in San Antonio and we have a a history and a heritage. We don't look to Mary. We don't look to statues. We look to and follow the example of the Magi who fall down before our Savior and our King and God with us, Jesus, Jesus. If we go back to uh, verse 2, it says they came to Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. In verse 2, it says they were saying, not that they asked one time, but they were sort of traveling with their entourage through the city asking this question, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? And so they come into Jerusalem looking to see this one, this one who has been born. And and as they travel around the city, it says that it troubles not only King Herod, but the whole city is troubled by this saying. Now, no doubt the Magi expected to find a quick answer to this. Oh, the one who's born king of the Jews, let's take you to him. But instead, everybody looks at them puzzled. What are you talking about? What king? What king has been born? They say, you know the one whose star has been shining and has been uh, literally guided us here? Where are, where is this king? And so finally they end up taking the magi to Herod, who was literally called by Rome and himself the king of the Jews. So they're there looking for the king of the Jews. They take them to the one who bears the title of the king of the Jews and they arrive and they say, this, this isn't the one we're looking for. He's way too old. And he's not even a Jew. He's a Gentile. He's some crony of Caesar Augustus who's been placed here falsely. This, this is a sham. This is a scam. No, we're looking for the real king. We're looking for the true Messiah. We're looking for the one that Isaiah talked about and Micah talked about. And Daniel talked about, we're looking for the one that God has been promising through the millennia. He has been born. Where is this king? So Herod calls in the, his scribes, the, 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 the scholars, the ones who, who know the scriptures. He assembles them together to find out where the king would be born. Which again, why doesn't Herod know where the Messiah is to be born? Well, it's because he's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. He doesn't know the scripture. He doesn't believe in God. He's just there because of, he wants power and he's been placed in a position of power. He's just there because he can keep the Jewish uh, people from rebelling. And he does it by building them a nice, beautiful new temple. And so the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees are, are in league with this, this wicked king who shouldn't be there. Their religious leaders are totally corrupted by power and money and wealth. 
And so he gets them together and he says, where does this old dusty book of your guys, where does it say that the king will be born? And this picture here is, is quite striking because they say, well, of course, it says in Bethlehem. They point to Micah 5.2. They point to Micah and they say, Micah the prophet, he says he'll be born in Bethlehem. Here's what the scripture says. And so Herod gets the magi together. He sends them off. Go on to Bethlehem, search for the kid. When you find him, tell me, so I too can come and worship him. We know that, of course, is a farce. He wants to destroy him. But what I find incredibly odd is that none of the scribes, none of the religious leaders, none of the scholars, they don't go with the Magi to find this king that's been born. They're coming into town and they're saying that the king of the Jews has been born. The Messiah has been born. And we've seen his star. God's been providentially guiding us to him. And where is he to be born? Well, here in Bethlehem, which is just five miles from Jerusalem. A day, you can make it in a, in a few minutes just walking there. And so they send the Magi, and the Magi go and they search out Jesus. But not one of the scribes, not one of the scholars... Not one of the religious leaders, none of them are curious to go see. And here we see, even at the very beginning, Jesus the King is already being rejected by the religious establishment in Jerusalem. They don't care. And the reason they don't care is because they don't believe. John 5, we don't have time to go there today, but John 5 tells Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, he rebukes the whole religious class in Jerusalem, and he tells them, you don't believe the word of God. You don't believe Moses. You claim to believe the Bible, but you don't. Because if you did, you would believe in me, the Messiah, whom he has sent. Because all of the scriptures point to me. And so here, even in this, this story, we see the unbelief, the utter disregard for God and his word that the scribes and the scholars and the Pharisees had as they won't even make the short trek to, to search this out and to see if there has been truly one who has been born who is the Messiah. And this picture is striking because it's Gentile pagans. Gentile pagans who are traveling across the known world, traveling some 900 miles and they won't even go five miles. It's a rather large indictment that Matthew is laying at the feet of the group that will ultimately have Jesus crucified. Now I want to look quickly at Micah 5.2. This scripture that he quotes here where he tells them the location of the birth of the Messiah, back into the Old Testament, just a few pages. Micah, Obadiah, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Micah 5, 2. There's more in here than Matthew condenses for us. There's more in this prophetic prophecy of just the location of where Jesus will be born. Bethlehem, of course, means house of bread. It was King David's hometown. It was where Boaz and Ruth, the grandparents of David, it's where their love story took place in the book of Ruth. David, their grandson, born in Bethlehem, the hometown of him, of David. God makes the promise that the Messiah will be born there. Micah 5.2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrath, who are little, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. 
Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure from now. He shall be great. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. This, 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 this phrase here in verse 2 that, that the coming forth of the Messiah, the coming forth of the king, the coming forth of the, this ruler is from of old, from ancient days. That literally means from eternity. That, that this ruler will literally be an eternal being, someone who has existed from eternity past, who will enter into time and space and eternity. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. John chapter 1 verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That this one who comes, Jesus, his, his origins are not in, in earthly means. His origins are not in an earthly pregnancy. His origins truly are from eternity past, from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. He is the one who has come from of old, from ancient days. Jesus is eternal God, entered into time and space as Emmanuel, God with us. And then in verse 4, it tells us what, what will be the, the extent of this king's kingdom. How far will this kingdom reach? To the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. The kingdom of Christ is universal. The kingdom of Christ knows no boundaries. The, the kingdom of our king is to the ends of the earth. There's not one speck of sand, not one speck of dirt that, that our king, our sovereign doesn't rule and reign over. king of the earth. I want to draw your attention, going back to Matthew, I want to draw your attention as we look to draw some application from this today. Back to the Magi. These were Gentiles. They were not part of God's covenant with Israel. They weren't part of God's covenant through Abraham. They practiced astrology, possibly magic, possibly were involved even in dark arts. They were highly educated, intelligent, wealthy. However, left on their own, left to their own devices, they would have never found Christ. All of the money that they possessed, all of the possessions, all of the wealth, all of the intellect, all of the education, all of it, they could have used all of it and they would have never found Jesus. It's only through the illuminating grace of God that God leads them and guides them and calls them. It's only by God drawing them. We don't know what they saw in the sky, but I know who the one is who commands the stars, who hangs the stars in the skies, the scripture says, who stretches out the heavens like we would stretch out a sheet, a bed sheet. That's how easy it is for our God. He's the one who commands the stars. And so he, he puts this on display to, to draw them to himself. It is the grace of God. It is the unmerited favor of God to these magi. This particular grace, this sovereign grace of God. They're only illuminated by this grace, by this star that shines and leads the way. But this grace only leads them so far. This drawing only leads them so far to the Messiah. 
There's also another key component that's needed to lead them to the true Messiah. And that is the Word of God. They're lost until they find the Word of God. They're stumbling around. They've had this drawing of the star, but the star only led them so far. They need the Word of God to light their way as well. And this, this picture of God's abundant grace is, rem is reminiscent of our inability without God. All of the intellect, all of the wealth, all of the riches, all of the skills, all of the education that you may possess, none of it will lead you to Christ without the Word of God and the Spirit of God drawing you. We are totally unable without the grace of God. Without the illumination of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are lost with no way to the Messiah. But now that, as Romans 5 says, that God has poured His love into our hearts, His Spirit bearing witness that with our spirit that we are the children of God, our way, the way to the Messiah has been illuminated by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. And now that we have been filled with the light and the love of God, Christ now calls us to shine bright with the radiance of His glory, pointing the way to the Messiah. He calls on His people, declaring that we are to be the light of the world, a city on a hill, leading the lost, leading the blind, leading the broken to the Messiah, to the Savior, to the King. We are not the Savior. We can say no, save no one. But we can be used as instruments of God's illuminating grace to show others the path to Bethlehem. To show others the path to the house of bread. That you, we can feast on that which will truly satisfy the soul. The bread of life. A bread that never runs out, a bread that never goes stale. You see, every other substance that we would try to satisfy our soul with in this life ultimately only produces more hunger. But Jesus, in Matthew 5, says that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they are blessed because they will be filled we can point people to that which truly will fill them, the bread of life, the bread that's come down from heaven. We can show them the way to Bethlehem. Isaiah 60 would be a great passage to read at this point. And so I'm going to read it at this point. Isaiah 60. I'm going to read it. I'm not going to preach it. I'm just going to read it. Isaiah 60, verse 1, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples of the earth. Do we see that today? Yes. It doesn't stop there. It goes on to say, but. The darkness may cover the earth, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. What does God call his people to do? Arise, shine, shine forth among our community, shine forth in our families, shine forth what? The glory of the Lord that has risen upon us. The glory of God shining in and through us as we don't hide our light, as we are not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. But as we shine forth, it says that the nations will be drawn to the light of Christ to the light of Christ 
That's what God calls his people to do, to shine forth like that star shined forth the glory of Christ. The grace of God manifests as he draws the Magi to himself. I want to conclude today by just looking at the gifts that they brought. These three gifts it names, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I don't think we should press too hardly into these, but they are costly gifts. Gold, the only gift befitting of a king. Recognizing as they gave him gold that he was royalty, that he was the king of the Jews, that they had found him. So they give him gold. Frankincense. Frankincense was the primary ingredient used in the incense that was made and burned in the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament as part of worship. So people have looked at this as representing Jesus' priestly role, his priestly role of, of reconciling us to God, of representing us to God in the frankincense and the incense that was burned in worship. And myrrh, myrrh was a perfume, a very strong and costly perfume, and it was used mostly to anoint the dead. The Jews didn't embalm their people. They would lie in state. And as they would lie in state, they would begin to stink. And so they would anoint them with very strong and costly perfume. And so we read on the first Sunday after Jesus passed away, that resurrection Sunday, that Mary and Martha and some of the other women are are going to anoint the body of Jesus because he had been buried in a hasty way. And so they're taking with them perfume. No doubt they would have been taking with them this very substance, myrrh. And so not only is this foreshadowing the death of Jesus, but also pointing towards the day of the resurrection. As when they got to the tomb, they found nobody to anoint. But instead they found two angels who asked them this question, why are you even looking for the living among the dead? He is not here, for he has risen. Put your myrrh away. Amen. The Magi, they bring their most precious and valuable gifts to this baby king. They lay at his feet these incredibly costly offerings. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What I find very convicting is that these magi, however many there were, they knew so little about this baby king. They knew so little about him. They didn't know one-tenth about what we know of this king. They didn't know of his divine origins. They didn't know of his earthly mission. They didn't know of his suffering at the cross, of his victorious resurrection. They didn't know of his glorious ascension to the right hand of the Father. They didn't know of the extent of his kingdom, of his ruling and his reigning the nations. They didn't know of his perfect justice and his perfect righteousness. They didn't know what kind of king he would be. They didn't know of his eternal kingdom. They didn't know about the spiritual realities of this king. They didn't know about his grace, his saving grace. They didn't know how deep that this grace would extend to the lowest of valleys. They didn't know how bright this light would shine into the darkest of nights. They didn't know how long his arm and powerful his arm was to reach to the depths of sin and brokenness and despair. They didn't know of the healing and the joy and the redemption and the restoration and the future and the blessing and the destiny that awaits all of his people for all of eternity that he alone brings. They knew so little. 
But they traveled so far to give so much. Their path being illuminated by a star. But our hearts have been illuminated by something much greater than a star, which one day will burn out. Our hearts have been illuminated by the Spirit of God. And how much more should we give our best and our all to our King? How much more should we who have received so much bow at his feet in worship? How much more should we offer not just gold and frankincense and myrrh, but our very selves as an offering unto him, which is our spiritual worship? They knew so little, yet they gave so much. Charles Spurgeon said this. I close with this quote. Those who look for Jesus will see him. Those who truly see him will worship him. And those who worship him will consecrate their all to him. Let's stand. Father, we thank you for your word. It is that lamp to our feet and our light to our path. Lord, you illuminated the path of the Magi by a star, but you illuminate our lives by your word and by your spirit. You have called us to be a city on a hill, to, to rise, to, to not shrink back at the darkness, but to, to press into the darkness with the light. Promising that when we do, that you will draw all men to yourself. So Lord, help us to give you our all as we shine with your glory. Unashamed of our King. Unashamed of the one who has called us, saved us, and redeemed us. It's in that name, the name of King Jesus, that we pray.